Welcome to the First Take Podcast with Simon King, Virginia Lee, and myself, Michael Flanagan. On this week's episode, we discuss Eli Lilly's attempt to bring price disruption to the U.S. cancer immunotherapy market, Pfizer and Amgen's future growth strategies, and some new diabetes and obesity drugs to keep an eye on. Please like, subscribe, and thank you for listening. In the last hour, a panel of cancer experts convened by the FDA has recommended additional clinical studies are carried out to support U.S. approval of the PD-1 inhibitor Cintilimab. Eli Lilly and its Chinese partner Innovent Biologics are seeking approval of the drug for the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. So Simon, what is the uh, significance of this decision? So the significance here is that Eli Lilly and Innovent want to secure approval of the drug and then price it in the US market at a sizable discount to other PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors, an approximate 40% discount according to comments made by Lilly earlier this week. And to this end, the route that's essentially been taken by them was to enter an agreement to co-develop Centilimab with Innovant, who were already running pivotal stage studies exclusively in China. And then feeling that FDA regulatory guidance would allow them to, they then decided to submit for US approval on the basis of those China-only data. However, it's the use of a Chinese-only study, um, which is one of the issues the FDA, and then ultimately today, ADCOM panelists are uncomfortable with. There were also concerns raised about the study design, which included the comparison of scintillamab to chemotherapy, which is no longer a standard of care treatment in this indication, and the use of progression-free survival as the primary endpoint with no formal testing of overall survival, as well as some question marks over clinical site compliance. But ultimately, what it boils down to is that Eli Lilly and Innovant disagree with the FDA over the applicability of these data to a US patient population, with the agency's stance now appearing to be much firmer than it was a few years ago, which appears to have caught Lilly and Innovant somewhat by surprise. Richard Pastor, who heads up the agency's oncology division, has essentially said in a number of recent interviews and editorials that clinical studies run outside of the US in a single country, and many of those that are occurring are happening in China, are just hands down not sufficient to secure approval in the majority of cases. But this has proven somewhat controversial because Pasteur appeared to encourage this very same approach in public comments he made back in 2019. And it's unclear how much those comments specifically contributed to Lilly and Innovant's thinking on the matter. Now, the other issue, of course, is that this whole process has provided a tantalizing glimpse at an opportunity to materially reduce the cost of cancer therapy and expand treatment access though it's not in the FDA's remit to consider pricing or drug cost, which it reiterated again at the start of today's ADCOM meeting. But one argument put forward by KOLs is that the agency should perhaps change this stance and find a solution to approving a drug like Centilimab under these circumstances if it's going to be priced cheaper, particularly in this case uh, or a case like this where the mechanism of the drug is well understood, which again is something that has the previously alluded to uh, a few years ago. 
We've also been polling oncologists this week, and most think that the cost of therapy materially limits their access to these types of treatment. And most think, on the face of it at least, that centilumab should therefore be approved. But simultaneously, the majority do also acknowledge the concerns that Pasdur and the FDA have raised. So it's a delicate situation. It seems that oncologists might be open to a trade-off in terms of the root development versus cost and access, but the FDA very much is not. Regardless, it's, it's pretty clear that price toxicity is going to be an issue that doesn't go away. I think the other side uh, about the meeting today that it's worth mentioning about is that the FDA said that neither Lilly or Innovant engaged with it in a manner which would have allowed these issues over study design to have been discussed or the data to be validated or, or the trials be modified at an earlier stage. But that's something that the two companies disagree with. And in fact, the meeting today seemed to be characterized by there being multiple cases of guidance or regulatory protocol that were being interpreted differently by each side. Ultimately, it seems to me at least like the comments that were made by Pasdor, it was at a medical meeting three years ago, might have actually taken on more weight than they should have done in terms of shaping the development program and the subsequent regulatory application. So in that regard, it could be that Lilly and Innovant are trying to save some face for a strategy which might be perceived as being a little bit naive. By the same token, it feels like the FDA has chosen to use the meeting today to very aggressively push back on those earlier comments and perhaps suggest that they were misconstrued. That was certainly the tone of the discussions today with the FDA going as far to say that in some cases it felt like it had been misled by the companies at times. Okay, uh, moving on. <clears throat> Both Amgen and Pfizer reported fourth quarter and full year earnings this week and provided some details regarding revenue expectations going forward. So Virginia, what were some of the key takeaways from their respective presentations? Sure, I'll start with Amgen, which laid out its growth plans for the next decade. Um, so the company is projecting sales of 25 to 26.5 billion this year and expecting global revenue to ramp up to around 35 billion by 2030. And there's certainly been some question of whether Amgen will actually be able to get there given the looming, given the looming loss of exclusivity for Tesla and increased pricing pressure on their established products portfolio. But from Amgen's perspective, they're really relying on strong launches from its KRAS inhibitor Lumacross and its newly approved asthma therapy test buyer, as well as significant growth from its biosimilars portfolio, which it, it thinks will double in revenue by the end of the decade. Um, so far, Lumacross sales have not quite met analyst expectations, so Amgen's focus in the near term is really going to be generating additional data and expanding the label for that product. And they're also looking to Repatha for growth over the next decade. So that product, their PCSK9 inhibitor, has had a slow launch, but Amgen thinks sales could ramp up if they're able to pull off a positive readout in 2025 from their cardiovascular outcome study. And then a bit longer term, Amgen's banking on its investment in different novel modality platforms. So they've long touted their interest in multi-specific therapies, and these agents at the moment make up more than two-thirds of their preclinical and phase one pipeline. And they've also done a handful of deals already this year focused on RNA therapeutics and protein degradation. So that's something to be watching for going forward. We also have Pfizer on track to potentially exceed 100 billion in revenue in 2022, thanks largely to 
its COVID-19 vaccine and antiviral, which together are expected to bring in over 50 billion in sales this year. But it's unclear how durable those sales would be as we move into new stages of the pandemic. So what's coming up next for Pfizer? Yeah, a big focus going forward for Pfizer will be on how it spends its pandemic profits. And the expectation is that a significant chunk of their cash is going to go into business development, particularly in the light of several late stage clinical setbacks that they've had. So that includes a failed lung cancer study for their PDL1 inhibitor, Bevencio, a clinical hold for their DMD gene therapy, and the discontinuation of their cardiovascular program partnered with Ionis and so on. So that's just a handful of them that they've had in recent months. And so there's no shortage of reasons why Pfizer would be looking towards licensing deals and M&A as a way to bolster the R&D pipeline. And on that front, there's been some positive momentum with the appointment of their new R&D head, William Pau, who previously led pharma research and early development at Roche. And that appointment will be effective in late March. And the company's also reported some positive clinical news during its earnings this week regarding its oral GLP-1 agonist, which could potentially rival leaders in its class from Nova Nordisk and Eli Lilly. Um, So here, Michael, I'll actually turn it back to you to provide some more color on the GLP-1 agonists and updates in the diabetes and obesity arena this week. Sure. So, you know, the GLP-1 space has been, you know, one that's been dominated essentially by Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk recently. And obviously they've been quite successful and there's a lot of growth expected for some new drugs in this area. So, you know, that sort of success always breeds, you know, um, some interested parties wanting to get in on the action. And interestingly enough, Amgen and Pfizer, the two companies we just talked about, um, are the two that, that popped up on the radar screen this week. And so, you know, they, they reported separate data sets. I'll start with uh, Pfizer. So basically they have had this oral GLP-1 agonist in development for a few years now. Uh, obviously people sort of thought, see it as a potential competitor for Ribelsis, which is the, you know, the recently approved drug for, from Novo Nordisk, also an oral GLP-1 agonist. Um, this Pfizer program, though, seemed to sort of hit the skids earlier. There was some phase one data that suggested the the GI tolerability was actually quite challenging. Um, Something like 80% had, you know, vomiting and there was a high rate of of nausea. So people were sort of thinking maybe this isn't going to be the competitor or the rival that, you know, it was billed to be. But then this week, uh, Pfizer bounced back with um, the program that they're now calling Danulipron. Um, And they reported some phase two data that actually looked pretty interesting. Um, They basically said uh, it achieved 5.7% weight loss after 12 weeks, which analysts suggested is basically in the same ballpark as Ribelsis. Um, And Pfizer, interestingly enough, said that the safety profile was, you know, quote unquote, consistent with the GLP-1 class. So they didn't actually break that out. And that's obviously a big sort of caveat with this entire uh, event. But, you know, they, by saying it's consistent with the rest of the GLP-1 class, that makes people think that, okay, this this might actually be sort of uh, similar in terms of the GI tolerability. We'll have to see how that goes. Um, They haven't really presented the data yet, but uh, it's, it's an interesting data point. And I think people will perhaps start to take this this Pfizer GLP-1 program a little bit more seriously now going forward. 
Now on the other side, there's Amgen. So this is a completely new product. Uh, it is AMG 133. And unlike the oral GLP-1s like Ribelsis and Pfizer's Danucliprin, AMG-133 is actually an injectable. So, you know, it's sort of, people see it as more a competitor for agents like Novo Nordisk's um, Wagovi, which is a semaglutide, uh, the injectable form, and Eli Lilly's Terzepatide, which is, you know, sort of on the verge of the market and expected to be a really big seller as well. Uh, this AMG-133 is has a dual mechanism. It's a GLP-1 agonist and also a gastric inhibitory polypeptide receptor or GIP-R antagonist. And so this is a first-in-class mechanism. And so people are, you know, they're pretty interested in seeing how it's going to work. This readout was, you know, very early. It was just a phase one. Um, and, you know, they didn't go into a lot of details, but they did say that it uh, generated weight loss of between 10 and 20 pounds over a hundred days, which um, analysts suggested, you know, is suggests it could be a solid competitor based on that, that weight loss for, you know, drugs like Wagovi, because they had a similar type weight loss profile and that was over much longer periods of time. So um, I'd say just put a little bow on it, both Amgen and Pfizer clearly sort of put themselves back well, for Pfizer back on the radar and for Amgen on the radar of these more established players in the GLP-1 and Incretin uh, mimetic space. So it should be interesting to see how things work going forward.